welcome to uh, the LGBTQI training. We are here to talk about LGBTQI and full service partnership. Uh, my name is Dr. Jennifer Alkihai. I'm a clinical supervisor with Seven Generations, um, and I work at United American Indian Involvement. Um, <clears throat> here's my kids, uh, my wife and my kids. I have a family um, and three adopted kids. There's Sammy in the middle. She's 24. And then my two sons, uh, Nicholas and, Al and Alexander. They're 14 and 13. And then we have our little firecracker. Um, <laughs> this is our uh, little granddaughter. Um, she loves to do makeup, so um, she's booking sessions now. Feel free, sign up quick, space is limited. Um, and this is the reason I do this training, um, because the reality is resources in our lives and access to resources and um, safety and health is not evenly distributed. And uh, so I am hoping that through this presentation, we can learn how to take steps to equalize it for the LGBTQ community. All right, so uh, one of the things we like to talk about <clears throat> is and obviously many of you know this already, but there's, uh, the LGBTQI community is very diverse. Um, we are found in every ethnicity. We are found in every religion and spiritual practice. Um, and you know, if you think about it, one of the things that every religion um, and spiritual practice almost all have in common is um, a lack of acceptance of LGBTQI people. Um, they see them as broken and unbalanced, many, or if not most. Um, many see them as an aberration that may need to be erased or some even killed in some countries. Um, definitely rejected and not a valued member of the faith community. Um, <clears throat> and then most LGBTQI youth and adults um, you know, experience rejection already from their families and their churches and their spiritual communities. So even the institutions that they uh, go get their education from may have that experience as well. Um, I'm an example of that. I grew up in a Christian community and decided to go to college at, um, at Christian, Christian uh, University for undergrad two of them actually, and then I went to uh, graduate school at a Christian university, um, Biola University actually. And so, you know, one of the things that we know from research is that even in terms of faith, faith often is so important to people that they're willing to try and uh, change their sexual orientation or their gender identity in order to try and have it reconcile with their faith. Um, that's how important faith communities can be. And often what will happen is if they most don't have the experience of changing their sexual orientation or their gender identity, and so they either need to walk away from their faith or find ways to integrate it in such a way as saying, okay, so not everything in my faith is accurate or true, and can I tolerate the tension? Um, but that's a difficult journey for many. So <clears throat> LGBTQI are found in every country. Uh, we're differently abled all across the spectrum. 
so there's a lot of ethnic, gender, and religious spiritual complexity. And the reason for that is because we're human. So anytime you're gonna find human beings all over this earth, uh, you're gonna find LGBTQI people. So that goes contrary to some of the myths that um, it's a phase or it could just be um, rebellion or all that kind of um, stuff. It, it is part of humanity everywhere. And we are different, not less. Most of you know the terminology, probably the only ones I'll go over um, are, most of you know what lesbian, gay, bisexual uh, are. Some of the ones I'll go over quickly are intersex and transgender. Intersex is a term uh, that's used for some conditions or actually some uh, a continuum in gender identification and development where, uh, and we're going to learn about this a little bit later on in the, in the presentation, where your biology doesn't develop exactly one way or the other. It's honestly a little bit of both. There are some intersex people who biologically are identified as female who may have testicles inside internally. There are some who are biologically identified as male and they may have ovaries um, internally. And often they don't know until uh, much later in their life. Um, so. There, and there are some who uh, have a little bit of both and function very well. Usually functioning is not even problematic. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. That's a whole other training. Um, the other one, two-spirit, is a term that was coined in the 90s uh, for Native American Alaska Natives. And um, they refer to that for, with people who have both masculine and feminine, feminine spirits in one person. Um, and then use terms like uh, sexual sexual, soji, which is sexual orientation and gender identity. It's used in the literature. And then transgender and gender nonconforming. Um, gender nonconforming is often, um, the other one that we use often is queer. Queer used to be a pejorative term. Um, it was initiated as an insult to the community and the LGBTQI community then claimed it back. And now it's kind of a, can be used as an umbrella term for anybody who's in the LGBTQI community. Okay. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about disparities in health and mental health. Uh, as some of you already know, there's quite a few disparities, um, differences. That's what I talked about with the quote, uh, the future is here, it's just not distributed equally. Uh, and that includes health and mental health care. So we're gonna talk a little bit. We'll start out first with the disparities in lesbian, gay, and bisexual. It's different than transgender and intersex, most specifically transgender community. Um, so the CDC did a, a study over 10 years actually, they, I think every year they did um, a youth uh, risk behavioral survey and they did start it in 2007 and they ended it in 2017 and uh, some of the results that they found were that um, if you look at the graphs, there's two little sections of data. On the left side, it's uh, what was the sexual identity of the people in the study and on this, the right side is who do they have sex with? Do they have sex with only um, the opposite sex or do they, the opposite gender or do they have sex, the middle one is usually they have um, sex with both or they're same sex. 
So if you're gay, you have sex with men. If you're lesbian, you have sex with women. Or if you're bi, or whoever, sometimes people who are gay or lesbian occasionally, there are some who have sex with both genders regardless. But it's interesting to note that in all of these, so here these two graphs are about injected illegal drugs, uh, inhalants, heroin, meth. On the left there, it should say bullied at school, and on the right is uh, forced to have sex. Um, and so we'll see that on the left side, the series, the identity, the ones who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and also, interestingly enough, the ones who state that they're unsure about what their identity is, uh, experience more bullying. And then uh, in terms of being forced to have sex um, uh, or being bullied, the people who had uh, same-sex sexual activity or sex with both genders also had higher risk of these experiences. Making a suicide plan uh, and making a suicide attempt, uh, again, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or unsure are a little higher than people who identify as heterosexual. And in terms of people who are higher risk are folks that either had same sex only or had sex with both genders. Okay? So that um, increases the risk in a lot of different areas, uh, exposure to violence or um, making you a target of violence and or internal distress in terms of suicidality. You know, the other main huge disparity is in the foster care system. Um, there's research that shows that about 20% of kids in the child welfare system, in the foster care system, are uh, LGBTQI of some sort. And um, that's actually a higher prevalence rate in the child welfare system than it is outside of the welfare system. Um, so not sure exactly what that means, but it is a curious statistic. And one of the things we know, and one of the reasons why we do this, and is because kids who are part of the LGBTQI community and maybe don't even know it yet, um, can be the subject of abuse. It increases their risk for abuse. And, and these are two kids, you may have heard of them, uh, Gabriel Fernandez and Anthony Avalos. Both of them were in the Antelope Valley. I think that was coincidental. But, um, and both were young boys, age seven and 10, who were tortured and abused physically, emotionally by uh, their caretakers, both their bio mother, I believe, uh, in one case. The other one, I don't think mom was aware of this, but um, you know, boyfriends um, or stepdads. Uh, and the one on the left, Gabriel Fernand, both, both of them were tortured, locked in closets. Um, and one of the key factors for both was they both had gender non-conforming behaviors, even as young as seven and 10. Um, and so one of the things we know, I think, especially with boys, sadly, is um, that gender non-conforming behavior, um, first of all, people can read into that uh, you know, just because you might be sensitive, they see that as can be seen as gender non-conforming. But I also think it's due to uh, misogyny and a lot of toxic masculinity. Um, and so that can contribute to increasing the risk, especially for boys and, and trans um, young, young men. So one of the things we know is there was a seminal study by Dr. Um, Caitlin Ryan. I'm trying to keep an eye on my time here. Um, and 
she she uh, published a study in 2009 that uh, was the first to integrate attitudes of family rejection and how they impacted the mental health of LGBTQI youth. And then later on, SAMHSA and Dr. Ryan worked together and published another study. Um, and one of the things they found, uh, and some of you might be familiar with this, um, are some very important statistics and concepts that are critical to working with LGBTQI folks. And one is that the, the more parental rejection you have, um, the higher the risk factors become. So for example, if you'll notice, it actually says LGBTQ youth with high parental rejection as compared to LGBTQ youth with moderate to low parental rejection. So this is even LGBTQ youth compared to other LGBTQ youth. So high parental rejection actually increases the risk to those kids eight times more likely to attempt suicide, six times more likely to report high levels of depression, three times more to use illicit illegal drugs, and three times more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior. Uh, and so the other thing they do well is, is make explicit what some of the family rejection behavior looks like. So physical and verbal abuse are the obvious ones, uh, excluding youth from family events, blocking access to friends, um, etc. Um, and we'll go over some more of that. There's some good news though. Um, parental acceptance can actually also have a huge impact on LGBTQ youth and young adults. One of the things they find is that LGBTQI youth that have extremely accepting family members, they see their chances of being happy and productive as adults, that increases it. 92% of those surveyed felt like they could be happy and productive adults. Uh, very accepting, it only went down a little bit, 77%, a little accepting, still almost two thirds, right? So a little bit of acceptance can go a long way. Uh, you know, then there are some kids and youth who have an exorbitant amount of resilience and uh, they still may have a happy, a, a, an outlook and think that they have a chance of being happy and productive as an adult, even with rejecting families. However, the majority increase their, um, that increases their risk. There was actually one study, in fact, um, it was done in Canada, it was um, surveying transgender youth and adults and they found that um, transgender young adults without family support, over 57% actually attempt suicide. Um, and transgender young adults with family support, only 4% attempted suicide. So it was a pretty significant decrease. Now, I'm not aware that this study was replicated. However, um, they are pretty significant results. And I think there's something we should shoot for. Um, you know, that we be able to impact families in such a way that it would decrease statistically that significantly. So what do we do? Here are more of the specifics related to the um, philosophies that are helpful as written um, by Dr. Ryan, as found by Dr. Ryan. And she works out of San Francisco State and the Family Acceptance Project. I think she's still there. Um, and some of the core theoretical assumptions which are important to recognize. And I think this is where you start clinically with folks. 
is to assume that all families love their kids and want what's best for them. Um, I would probably say majority of parents love their kids, even the ones who may be hurtful. Uh, they may not know how else to be, or they don't have much empathy for their kids, maybe because of the trauma they grew up with. But if they could figure out how to do it differently, a lot of them are interested in doing that. Um, and most, ki most families love their kids. The other thing is families don't have to change their core beliefs um, in order to love and accept their kids. Uh, they can still have a strong faith uh, and maybe just tweak or ignore the little pieces that say, oh, we should reject our kids because they're LGBT. Um, we also realize that family behaviors are not isolated incidents. There's always a family culture or an ethnic religious culture to it. Uh, might also be gender related or gender socialization as well as socioeconomic. And often parents can make these decisions due to lack of information, not necessarily because they're bad parents. Um, and, you know, parents have their own acceptance process that we need to help them with. This is shown pretty interestingly in terms of also um, helping parents um, be able to learn to accept and love their kids. And the idea that parents often um, underneath love their kids, the, the best example I can think of recently was I follow a uh, gender nonconforming youth, um, actually young young person, um, their name is uh, Rain Dove. I don't know if any of you have heard of them, but there was an interaction that was on Instagram or Facebook, and it was an interaction with a mom of a transgender um, son, and the mom came at Rain Dove and was hostile and rejecting, and Rain basically um, validated, reflected her feelings, and affirmed her and was able to reach around some of the defensiveness to um, affirm the fact that she loved her child and her child must have trusted and you know her enough to tell her about the fact that they wanted to use a binder um, or they wanted to bind their chest and so there was a lot of affirmation that happened and it's interesting because it was openly hostile and and critical and saying, you know, you people and, you know, the mom just came at rain like that. And by, by the end of the conversation, the mom was like, wow, well, we're, you know, I, I really do care about my kid and I worry about my kid. And, um, you know, tell me a little more about chest binders and where I can find them. And, uh, and so the, the conversation turned a whole 180 degrees around because of the way rain interacted with her. And I know that we all have the power to do that and sow seeds in those directions as well. Um, and I want to, I hope that we all would take advantage of opportunities to confront some of the stigma and the myths and the oppression that's around and help. And, and, you know, and that was a prime example of where if you come at it from the belief that this mom loved their kid, they just didn't know what to do. Um, and they didn't know how to make the shift, and we can help bridge that for parents. You know, core therapeutic strategies, I think these are common with uh, LGBT youth as well as with just any youth. Um, meet families where they're at, view uh, family members as potential allies rather than threats, uh, et cetera. We wanna give them language 
And we definitely, number five, want to provide them with the education about the impact that family rejection has on our kids. Behaviors that help, these are the explicit suggestions, um, learning how to talk with your kid about their LGBT identity, expressing affection, supporting their identity, advocating for them when they're mistreated. Um, a big one is requiring that other family members respect your LGBT child. Uh, this is especially a really big deal with, um, with uh, young trans kids in school or in churches. Um, there's a lot of verbal and emotional abuse that can happen. And parents, it's, it's a rough road. There are a lot of uh, groups, social media groups for parents of transgender kids because you have to really be a big you know, mama bear and a papa bear. Um, and because your kids need a lot of advocacy and people to step in and say, this is unacceptable. You also wanna welcome your child's LGBT friends and partners to your home. Uh, that may be difficult for some parents. They may need your help with that. But this will help them get to know that the other side of their kid that they didn't know before they came out. Behaviors that don't, some of these are pretty obvious. Hitting, slapping, verbal harassment, excluding them from family activities, blocking access to friends and resources, um, blaming the kid if they get hurt or they experience discrimination, um, pressuring your child to dress differently, um, oh, you should be some more feminine. Um, you know, some of that is just gender socialization. I'm, I'm 54 years old and sometimes my mom still does the, oh, I wish you would wear X, Y, and Z. Mom, <laughs> not gonna happen. Anyway, working with transgender, uh, transitional age youth and adults. And um, one of the things I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna start with one more video and this will be the last one. So one of the things that uh, is in the video is it talks a little bit about the biological development of the fetus. And um, the, uh, in, at about eight weeks, it describes what happens in utero, um, the hormones that come out and how it starts to help the development of the genitalia and the reproductive organs. So one of the things they talk about is that we all start out as intersex, actually, in the womb. Um, meaning we have both a penis and a vagina um, and they're not fully formed, they are developing. And what happens is through the process of addition of dihydrotestosterone, a, a version of testosterone, uh, it causes the penis to grow more um, or without it, then um, the, without the addition of that, then it causes the vagina to develop more fully. And the tubercle that's in the middle, that is the beginning of the penis, um, either develops into the penis or it shrinks and it becomes um, the clitoris. And one of the things that can happen, forgive the background noise, I'm at home. <laughs> um, one of the things that happens is that uh, sometimes this process doesn't always go correctly. And Sometimes the genitals won't develop fully one way or the other. Either there could be uh, a deficit in the dihydrotestosterone or uh, sometimes there might be too much. Uh, and so either people can remain intersex or there's a variety of intersex um, conditions is the wrong word, but just variations 
and uh, the, then you get a mix of the reproductive organs. And so ultimately the thing, the implication is that we all start out that way. Uh, and there's some biological influences that we have absolutely no control over. And so one of the things that can happen is, let me see what's next on the um, slide, is that uh, it, it becomes a little more understandable then how, you know, gender identity is the idea that you're, what you, what sex you were assigned at birth due to the presence of a penis or presence of a vagina um, may not match what your brain has decided internally. Sometimes they can, there can be a big mismatch. So, and I think some of this could be a result of the um, addition of some of the horm hormones that are feminizing or masculinizing, masculinizing uh, or not enough. And so your brain could really believe that you are a boy, but biologically there wasn't enough to, uh, to develop the penis more adequately. Um, or the reverse, um, maybe there was, you were biologically assigned male because you had a penis, but there wasn't enough dihydrotestosterone to really solidify that in terms of brain development. And so a person may feel internally like a female. And so that really is how a big contribution to the development of a transgender identity. Um, the other thing is with gender non-conforming folks, you know, really gender identity is on a, on a spectrum. Um, you know, at one end you have male, the other end you have female. And what happens is, is that I think any of us can be anywhere along that spectrum. Um, and so, you know, there are some who are very firmly planted at either end, and there are some who, there are some people who identify as both. Uh, there are some who don't want to identify as either. Um, that contributes to the pronoun use requests, um, you know, using they or them for their pronouns instead of she, her, and hers, or he, him, and his. Um, I myself use she and her. Um, and so, you know, that, that really has opened up the idea of allowing people to define themselves. Um, that said, gender nonconforming kids and, and young adults are at much higher risk for abuse. Um, you'll see articles about it all the time. And again, I think one of the biggest contributions is the idea of toxic masculinity. So, um, you know, there was a, a young, a high school student, uh, I think he was a senior somewhere, he was riding a bus and he had a uh, skirt on and he fell asleep on the bus and somebody set his skirt on fire. Um, and I don't know that it would have been the same if he was more gender non-conforming, um, I mean gender conforming. And so it, it, it increases the risk to kids for being bullied as well as targeted for violence, sexual violence, um, etc. Sea de una enzima hace que unos bebitos crezcan como si fueran niñas hasta que llegan a la pubertad y se transforman en varones. Ricardo Alambarri viajó a República Dominicana, nos cuenta más sobre esta extraña condición. Es una niña, no, es un niño. Imagínense la confusión no solo de los padres, sino del propio menor cuando de pronto de hembra se convierte en macho. 
Cuando él nació, ¿usted pensó que era una hembra? Una hembra. ¿Y qué nombre le puso? Yo le puse Catherine. Conozcan a Catherine. Al menos así lo bautizaron. Ahora lo llaman Castro. O sea, ¿de pequeño jugabas con muñecas? No. No. Cuéntame con, cómo jugabas. ¿O andabas con chicas? No, andaba con un muchacho. Lo vestían de niña, iba a la escuela como niña y no fue hasta los comienzos de la pubertad que, con el aumento de testosterona, comenzó a cambiar físicamente, desarrollando órganos sexuales masculinos. ¿A partir de qué momento los médicos ya dijeron, bueno, no es hembra, es macho? A los 10. A los 10 años. Para entender lo que le pasó a Cástulo hay que remontarse un poco al embarazo de su madre. Durante los tres primeros meses es cuando se determina el sexo del embrión. En su caso, hubo una anomalía. Cuando nació, presentaba lo que aparentaban ser órganos sexuales femeninos. La base de los labios mayores van a estar oscurecida como si fueran escroto, un poco vacía. No tiene testículo ahí. Y el clítoris, o labios menores, va a estar un poco agrandado, simulando un micropene. Este desorden del desarrollo sexual es ocasionado por la deficiencia de la enzima 5-alfa-reductasa. Genéticamente, son varones. Pero por el déficit de esa enzima, los niños que nacen con ese problema tienen una apariencia en sus genitales, unos aspectos, eh, digamos, de pseudohermafroditismo, que era el término antiguo. Entonces, parecen hembras, pero a la vez varones. Este es el camino que nos lleva de Angostura a Salinas, una comunidad rural al sur de República Dominicana, sin interés turístico y aislada. The segment I was going to show you, um, besides the uh, actual video of some fetal development in utero, um, there's some video of that, they, they do um, give you a little more exposure to this community in the Dominican Republic. And it's interesting, that other clip that you showed initially that was commentary, um, they mentioned that uh, this condition is found in several other countries. And I actually didn't know that it was found in several other countries now. When I first ran across this about three or four years ago, uh, it was exclusively um, found in the Dominican Republic in this one village, where about 10% of the boys um, started out as girls. And what would happen is their penis wouldn't develop. And so they had all the biology of a female, but once puberty hit, all of a sudden, um, then the penis would start to grow and then you'd have the secondary sex characteristics kick in in terms of muscle development and addition of testosterone, et cetera. Uh, and it's fascinating because there's at least three different kids there, one who's an adult and uh, two others that are little and they actually show, you know, some of the transformation that happened. Um, And some of it even is within families. Um, one young girl is getting ready to transition because she really feels that she's a boy and is about 11 years old. And, um, and so they cut her hair. And the interesting, they've been through this because her cousin did this exact same thing uh, and transitioned to male. And then, you know, puberty kicked in and they've all developed into males. Um, and so again, here's an example of where biology is more complex and less all or nothing than we ever thought was possible. Uh, and so, you know, gender is not a binary thing. It is definitely on a, on a continuum. And um, I think any one of us can end up 
on that spectrum. And some, I think, maybe on the spectrum and, and not even know it. There have been people who have, women who have tried to get pregnant and found they couldn't because they found out only later that uh, they were missing some reproductive organs or had testicles instead or didn't have, um, you know, who knows? There were just some variations. Um, so this is part of the variety and variations in human development. Uh, and transgender is just one of them, gender nonconforming, um, sexual orientation, who you love, who you're attracted to, all of those are part of the spectrum. So, but let's look at one of the things I think that I've found in my uh, clinical work is that tr the transgender community and uh, intersex and gender nonconforming tend to be the areas that are least known by uh, providers as well as healthcare providers. And there are significant implications to that. Um, and you'll see why in a second. Um, so just some of the statistics related to transgender folks. Um, there's been two main, there's three actually now, there's several um, huge transgender studies that they've done. I think one was done in 2011 and another one was done in 2015 where they they survey a large group and get uh, information about their you know differences in terms of access to healthcare and challenges, et cetera. So, um, so of the there was another survey that was done. Let me move the bar here um, uh, by a group called Transgender Lifeline, which is a hotline that is in Los Angeles, and it was started in 2014 after the death of, uh, I don't know if any of you remember this particular young uh, woman, her name was Leela Alcorn. And um, uh, a colleague of mine, a trans male colleague who was, um, had gotten a phone call the weekend before from Leela's mother. And Leela's mother said, hey, you know, um, my son thinks he's a girl, I don't know what to do. Um, and then a week later, uh, Leela committed suicide. And uh, <clears throat> my colleague was, you know, just heartbroken, um, trans himself, and he realized we need to do something. And so they started a transgender um, lifeline, and you can find it at translifeline.org, I believe. And uh, they started taking calls, and it was set up to be a peer-to-peer -peer hotline. Um, because the idea was that really, it's gonna be pretty hard to help the trans community unless you've gone through some of it yourself because it's so significantly different than whatever is, else is out there. Um, and so anyway, the Trans Lifeline also conducted their own mental health survey in uh, 2017, 2018. And, um, uh, and so some of this is information, they surveyed about 8,000, I believe, uh, transgender folks across the nation. And this were some of their experiences that uh, were reported in the study. So in terms of 53% um, of those surveyed reported avoiding mental health altogether because of their experiences of distrust or provider ignorance. Uh, oops, that's weird that all the ones, sorry about that. 52% avoided coming out to hospital providers due to mistreatment or discrimination. 51% um, actually had to educate hospital providers or staff about trans issues. Now think of that. 
if you went to go to the doctor for cancer treatment and the doctor said, well, I, you know, I'm not sure. Can you tell me what you think we should do? Um, I, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little, um, it doesn't engender a lot of trust and a lot of confidence in your doctor, especially um, hospital provider, if they have no clue what to do with you. Uh, and so there's a lot of, or there have been in the past, a lot of uh, medical staff who were just clueless and also some of their own personal biases and, um, you know, un lack of education and ignorance in these issues contributed to an inability to provide care. Um, some of the other experiences of trans people in this survey that they reported in hospital settings the good news is at least 42% of them reported they didn't experience any mistreatment. So hallelujah, because um, you know the rest of what I'm gonna show you is, is not encouraging. 42% uh, uh, discussed having repeated purposeful misgendering. So you know, often a transgender person, their uh, insurance card may not match their gender identity that they present with. And even though, you know, a trans person may say, this is my name, um, you know, all the nursing staff and all the doctors will, you know, out of ignorance, still use the insurance, the name on the insurance card. Um, and so, and that's hurtful um, because the, the trans folk really feel very embarrassed and they are, that's not who they are. Um, so again, some of these other statistics. Uh, this one, the fourth one down, 20% of the providers in the hospital setting talked in front of other employees, other patients, and with other counselors about the transgender status of this person, even though there was no reason for them to be talking about that. So in other words, they're talking about outing this person about their transgender status um, unnecessarily and only out of curiosity or gossip. Um, talk about HIPAA violations. 19% um, uh, emotionally abused by employees, other patients or counselors um, placed in incorrect gender facility. Um, one of the, we're gonna talk about that, what the impact is on um, crisis and, and the differences between working with lesbians, gays, and bisexuals compared to transgender and um, some gender non-conforming folks. Some of the other experiences they, um, they experienced, uh, the hospital involved unsupportive family members or pressured them to uh, allow them um, and, you know, involved unsupportive family members without their consent. Okay. They were denied access to the appropriate bathroom. Um, this one also shocked me. They were actually asked to show their genitals without a medically necessary reason to do so. In other words, there was nothing that they came for that had anything to do with needing to discuss their genitalia, and yet somehow they were asked or required to discuss or show it. Um, uh, other inappropriate things uh, at the bottom, denied visitation by supportive family members, including LGBTQ organization or program staff. Um, and as we know, having supportive people around, especially if you're sick and in the hospital, is super important to, to your healing, both physically and emotionally. Some of the others were pressured to renounce their transgender status by a religious worker. 
in other words, if they had, maybe it was a uh, faith was a really big component of their cultural and uh, personal identity. And so maybe a person of faith would come to visit them, but you know, they were either forced to renounce their status, transgender status, or maybe the faith person wouldn't come to visit them. Um, and again, uh, even the fact that this exists, I, I know it does, but it's, horrific to even think about, that they'd be physically or sexually assaulted by an employee of the hospital or a fellow patient or counselor. As we know for the transgender community, the prevalence of self-injury and suicidal ideation among the respondents, um, very high statistics of, of those 8,000 or so respondents, 50% of them had attempted at one point in time at least to uh, end their life by suicide. 70% um, intentionally self-harmed or self-injured um, as a way to cope with the stress. 88% uh, considered ending their own life at some point. 58% um, considered ending their own life in the last year. And then frequency, 56% more than once in that year and 66% more than once a month. So really high, when you see a transgender person, there's a 50% chance at least that they have had active suicidal ideation and or had at least one attempt. So I wanna talk a little bit about the key differences in working with uh, LGB versus transgender um, clients. Um, you know, the first is differentiating between sexual orientation and gender identity. Often family members and or um, uh, providers sometimes conflate those or confuse them. And, you know, sexual orientation is about who you are attracted to. Um, am I attracted to the same gender, opposite gender? Some people don't have any interest in sex at all. They're asexual. Um, or some people are pansexual. They have no preference. They're just attracted to the person. They don't care what gender or what how they identify. Um, uh, so sexual orientation is who you're attracted to sexually and physically. Um, gender identity is who you are when you go to bed at night, right? Um, and not about who you're attracted to. It's how you identify yourself gender-wise. And again, it's a continuum. It could be, you know, identify as a female completely, or it could be a, a, an identify as a male, or there are some folks who identify as bi-gender. Um, some folks who would prefer not to identify with any gender at all. Um, so again, on that spectrum. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, the other thing that can happen is you will have people who, transgender folks, I, I, um, who will go through gender confirmation surgery and then still, uh, so for example, I, there was a friend of mine who uh, was a trans woman um, and stayed married to her wife that she had had uh, when she was previously presenting as a male. And they've still been married for 50 plus years, but she and her wife don't consider each other themselves lesbians. Um, like her wife says, no, I'm not attracted to other women. I'm only attracted to this person that I marry. Uh, and so that, you know, she, this, uh, my friend's wife does not consider herself to be a lesbian, just considers herself to be married to someone who happens to be a woman, um, but is not attracted to other women. So you can have somebody who transitions genders 
and uh, will change sexual orientation or stay. I, I know um, one person, uh, several people actually, many who have transitioned to um, say uh, the the trans trans man who is a colleague of mine transitioned to male and then previously had defined themselves as uh, female and heterosexual. And then once they transitioned, realized they were still interested in men, uh, or, or, but now they define themselves as, as gay. Um, and there are people who transition from uh, male to female and then decide that they are uh, heterosexual. Um, and so it's very complex. And so I want to be careful and make sure that we make room as providers for um, gender identity being very different than sexual orientation. And even though your gender identity um, may have changed from what you were biologically assigned, your orientation, you know, I think we get stuck as cisgender folks, cis meanings, cisgender meaning the same, um, our biology and our mind match. Who we are on the inside matches what we think about how we define ourselves. Um, so there's a lot more variability than we expect. Um, <clears throat> so another, some other key differences in working with lesbian, gay, and bisexual versus transgender. LGB much more focused on who they are attracted to. It's much more about sexuality issues um, and romantic and relationship issues um, for the most part. For transgender, it's much more, excuse me, um, the, the clinical work is much more about their medical issues because they feel trapped in a body and, and are rejected for their gender presentation and they want to change their body because it doesn't match. And so it's much more focused on if the trans, the reason they're coming to you for therapy or that you're going out into the community and there's a transgender um, youth or somebody who's gender non-conforming in a family you're working with, it's much more about access to medical resources. Be, um, so, and for some trans people, um, puberty is terrifying. It may feel like your body is completely de betraying you and, and puberty feels more like getting cancer or terminal disease because it's just so dissonant and dysphoric. Um, you know, I don't know if any of you have watched the Jazz Jennings um, series. Um, I'm sure there's some clips on video on YouTube if you can't find any. But, you know, one of the interesting things is she has a very, very accepting family. Um, they've really gotten behind her. Um, I'm not sure if she uses she or they, them pronouns. But um, they've gotten behind uh, them. I'll just use them in case. And... Um, They've tried very hard to support Jazz and, you know, support her, uh, support them in terms of their uh, medical care as well as social and emotionally. And yet there were times when Jazz in the series was very depressed and having a rough time and in a very dark place because being trans is hard. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you realize is that family acceptance makes a huge difference. And there's some that's kind of normal teenage angst, but also um, just challenging. So 
you know, one of the things that's an issue is, am I, you know, for jazz in, in many trans individuals, there's this issue of, am I going to have access to the hormones that I need to block my secondary, secondary, sec, uh, my biologically defined sex characteristics from developing? I, I want to prevent puberty. Um, or if I'm beyond puberty, oh my gosh, how do I cope with that? Because I hate it. Um, and so there's a lot more need for medical advocacy and support. The other thing that's very um, unusual and uh, oppressive and discriminatory to some extent is that many transgender folks are not believed that they are transgender. And so one of the requirements is that in order to um, assist them in accessing some of the medical care, they need to go to a therapist and meet with them, at least one or two, I think, and have them write a letter saying that, yes, we believe this is appropriate. So, you know, that would be kind of like you going um, to go get cancer treatment or to, uh, you know, anybody who wants breast enhancements or, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, if they want to get, um, what's, what am I looking for? you know, for a guy who wants to um, get snipped, basically, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't need to have, go see a therapist first to make sure it's real, right? They, they go and they say, this is what I need to have done or what I want to have done. And if it's a procedure that's covered by insurance, you get it done. If it's not, you pay for it, right? But nobody questions, oh my goodness. Um, it, so, you know, this is a, another hoop uh, I remember my colleague and friend, you know, was frustrated to no end because he would try and access um, healthcare at Kaiser and they would restrict him because they, they weren't sure that they, you know, really thought that that's what he needed. Um, and so he didn't have access to um, testosterone, which was really helping him with the transition. Um, so anyway, that, these are some of the experiences in working with the transgender and gender nonconforming, but specifically transgender. So there's a much heavier focus on medical advocacy and support. Um, now, a um, few other things. Not all transgender people have gender confirmation surgery. Um, in fact, many of them don't. Some people have uh, some surgeries, but not all of them. Um, not all trans people transition. Uh, you know, some are content with transitioning and transitioning in terms of their gender presentation, but don't want to do anything in terms of changing or surgically uh, transitioning or confirming um, anything in their body uh, surgically. Um, transition looks different for each person. Okay. And for trans people, this is a frustration that they have to have others determine whether they are legitimate or not. Um, and really, if we think about it, you know, is there any overt harm to letting somebody transition? You know, they're still the same person. Um, you know, the, the people with the problem are people on the other, the, 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 not the person. You know, it's the families, it's the friends who have trouble adjusting. Um, so they're the ones that should go to therapy. <laughs> anyway. Um, the other thing that's very, very important in terms of working with lesbian, gay, and bisexual versus transgender is a crisis response. 
Um, one of the things that's common if we have somebody who's actively suicidal and has a plan, means, and intent, what do we typically do? We call a PET team or a PMRT team and we have them evaluated. If they are a danger to self or others, then we hospitalize them. Um, or if we can find some way to, uh, you know, for a kid, keep them safe at home, uh, having somebody watch them 24 seven uh, in small cases, but most of the time we hospitalize them. Well, for a transgender person, these are very uh, traumatizing experiences because first of all, then you go back into, you know, their name on the insurance card most likely because often their insurance card doesn't match their gender identity. Uh, and often it, in many states, it's uh, illegal or not allowed to change your gender on your birth certificate or on your driver's license uh, in order to, to obtain documents that match your gender. Um, it's a really big deal when a transgender person is able to do that. Um, but some, you know, even if they live in California, if you were born in Ohio, Ohio, I don't know if they do now, but Ohio didn't used to let you be able to do that. And so you were stuck too bad. Um, uh, the other thing is that if you hospitalize somebody, often they will try and house you in the wing that matches your gender assigned at birth. Even though you may have transitioned and you are much more comfortable with yourself um, because you identify as a woman, same thing with jails and institutions as well. They will often house people in the wing or part of the hospital or jail that matches the uh, biology instead of their gender identity. Uh, and that can be very traumatizing. You go to college uh, and there's a transgender student, they will refuse to let you live in the dormitory that matches your gender identity um, often. And so anyway, crisis response then to hospitalize actually is more traumatizing. And then, you know, remember all those experiences people had in hospitals with providers, right? Uh, and so it's a very dangerous place. So one of the things I know with um, Trans Lifeline, they actually do not, um, if they encounter suicidality, which they do a lot, they will only call um, uh, PMRT teams or crisis services with if the client consents. What they try to do instead is find a way to have safe family members or safe friends that they could stay with and help watch um, because they're accepting. And so they're not going to house them in the wrong place. They're going to know what the experience is like. They're going to know what they need, just acceptance and it's distress. So they, they need somebody to sit with them and just be with them. So one of the things that is very different in working with lesbian, gay, and bisexual and with transgender is um, you have to be very mindful and thoughtful about how you handle crisis response and potential hospitalization or calling police. Um, that's another uh, area where they're often abused and or harassed when the police show up. Um, you know, another disparity in the, in the community is that I think many of you may know, but in terms of, um, the murder rate, the murder rate for transgender, uh, people is the highest murder rate in the, 
highest demographic with the highest murder rate um, of any, and then the highest murder rate in the country is trans women of color. And again, partially because of toxic masculinity, misogyny, um, and also because of um, internalized racism as well as uh, harassment that may show up in terms of law enforcement um, and or rescue workers. And so, you know, crisis response needs to be thought through very carefully. Uh, it's just not an automatic report and uh, calling a PMRT team because that can be equally traumatizing, if not worse. Um, and so we, so often I, I know I encourage staff and providers to consider, are there alter, safer alternatives all around? And um, often there are. 90% of the time, uh, Trans Lifeline says that they're able to help the person and establish, connect, get them connected with more community, more support systems, and then it decreases the suicidality. Um, <clears throat> let's see, let me go back here. I'm not quite ready to go to COVID yet, but one of the things is uh, another issue with the trans. So, you know, obviously one of the issues is we are in the time of COVID-19. And, um, you know, many youth and young adults are, and as, as all the rest of us are, even us here today, are home. Uh, because we're staying at home, trying to social distance. Um, but one of the key things that is a coping that, that helps is social and family acceptance. And uh, so for transitional age youth or LGBTQ youth who are having to stay home, they're losing the connection to accepting and affirming, affirming communities. Um, it's become so much more difficult now. And so we want to try and support their access. Remember the, the do's and don'ts for parents. If the, your parents are not there yet, even more now than ever is they have an opportunity to get in the way of things that would promote health and well-being for their LGBTQ kids. Um, you know, the kids need to know they're not alone. We want to support social connections um, that don't rely on physical proximity. So for example, online chat rooms, um, you know, Trevor Project, uh, as well as Gender Spectrum and some of the other, um, there's another one, QChat or something like that, that have uh, uh, social platforms where they can talk with other age youth that are LGBTQ and I. Um, and, but if they're in, you know, families that are hostile to their sexual orientation or gender identity, then they may restrict access to that. Um, the other thing to think about is parental controls. I think parental controls don't take into consideration, um, you know, if you want to connect with, a, you know, gay community or a transgender community, often the the parental controls will screen those out. <laughs> so having sons myself uh, that are 13 and 14, um, we know parental controls are an important um, facet of online life. However, uh, it could be very harmful for kids who are trapped at home. Um, you also have the loss of positive social interaction action with schools, um, gay straight alliances, or after school activities, some kids really enjoy connection through sports 
or theater or, um, you know, and so they lose access to those things. Um, and re remember, LGBTQ social acceptance is a huge factor. They're higher risk for bullying and all that kind of stuff. Um, also, if they're trapped at home with an un uh, a host openly hostile or rejecting family, that increases the risk for abuse, uh, especially for gender nonconforming kids. There's so much research um, more recently that uh, I think they surveyed the LGBTQI community uh, with kids in, um, in uh, risk for abuse. And the gender nonconforming kids are like two, three times more um, at risk for abuse and experience more abuse than kids who are more gender conforming, they're gay, lesbian, bisexual. Um, and so it's a really big issue. Um, you know, it's harder to get a job at this time for anybody. Um, increased problems with homelessness. Um, you know, a lot of the many LGBTQ kids get kicked out of their homes uh, for being gay. And so then a lot of them uh, trade sex for survival, for food or a place to stay. Uh, and there's, you know, a much more significant population of uh, homeless kids. And so now it's even worse, right? Now they also have to worry about COVID um, in addition to being homeless and rejected and not having a place to stay. Um, so it, COVID has just really kind of increased and escalated the problems um, as it has for all of us. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, I think we just have to be aware for ourselves and for um, the clients we serve just how significant the COVID-19 isolation can be. Uh, I don't know, there was an article in the LA Times today um, written by the departmental health um, director, and he was talking about how a friend of his um, started having a psychotic break as a result of some of the stress of the COVID-19 crisis, and it was never a part of their um, history before. Uh, and so it really can affect all of us. And so I think it's important to screen and be available um, and, and think through what is the additional challenges this is um, adding to all of us, much less the LGBTQI community. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the last thing I'll go over is, um, you know, I found this recently and I thought it was helpful and I think it's helpful with clients and families is to, um, you know, have some questions to try and help us cope with the, this reality. We're not sure how long this is going to stay. Um, it could be, yeah, we're opening up, but we don't know if we're going to get a second and third wave. Um, you know, the Spanish flu lasted for two years back in 1918. Um, we don't know how long it's going to take for vaccines. So, you know, how can we help clients and families and ourselves cope differently with this? And so I ran across, somebody shared this with me and I, I thought it was helpful and I think it can be helpful for LGBTQ anybody, adults, kids, um, and ourselves. You know, how, how can we find some more helpful thoughts um, to help us get through this. And so some of these questions, and I apologize for the numbers. Uh, I'm not sure why they morphed into all ones. Uh, I know it's done that on several slides, but um, you know, what am I grateful for today? Um, one of the expressions I've heard is that um, gratitude is the mother of joy. 
Uh, <laughs> and I really think it's true. If we if we can stay in gratefulness, we are much more likely to have fun and enjoy ourselves no matter what the circumstances are. Uh, another question, who am I checking in with or connecting with today? Um, who, who can I help? Who can I call and see how they're doing? Um, how am I getting outside today? Go take a walk. Um, you know, we're still allowed to do that. How am I moving my body today? Am I, you know, taking care of myself? Um, this next two were, you know, were very crucial for me too. What expectation of normal are you letting go of today? Um, because there is a lot of normal things that we're having to let go. Um, and so, you know, we need to be mindful that we don't know how long this is going to be. And so, you know, maybe think through what part of normal will we have to let go for now for a while maybe longer. Um, and then, you know, what beauty am I either creating, cultivating, or letting in today? Am I letting some beauty, uh, some joy, some enjoyment, whether it's fun in something I watch, is it something I do? Uh, who do I connect with on Zoom? Who do I, um, am I creating something? Am I taking up a new hobby? Am I enjoying music? Am I, you know, there's so many places that are um, allowing us to uh, <clears throat> see opera for free, see a lot of uh, movies and classical arts uh, online. So, you know, what beauty am I letting into my life and how can I be more intentional about that? So those are just some of my um, things to integrate into my clinical work as well as with my coworkers, as well as with my family, to be honest. So um, I will wrap up with that. I do have a bibliography um, that is available. Uh, I think the facilitators will also send the information out, um, access to the PowerPoint as well. And I want to open it up for questions. We had a question from, uh, 20, 30 minutes back, right after your last sort of pause. Um, a question, uh, when someone comes out of the closet, their family often goes in the closet. How does the family manage if the child wants to keep their sexuality private? So this was, I guess, relating back to the video we saw, um, the first one. How, how does the family handle it if the child wants to keep their sexuality private? Yes. Okay. Well, I think it's uh, the, the, you know, the child is the key, right? It's their story. And so they may, you know, just because they come out to you doesn't mean they're ready to come out to everybody. And so I think we need to help family members be accepting of that and allow them to take it at their pace. Um, and also, I think helping kids and um, young adults realize that uh, parents also have to come out of the closet a little bit. And it may, you know, the kids may have been struggling with it for 18, 20, 30 years. Uh, and now all of a sudden the parents know, and, you know, hopefully it doesn't take them 30 years to adjust. Um, but it, it's, it's their own coming out process, you know? Um, so, but I, I, for me clinically, uh, and for most kids, it's about, it's their life, so it's their story. It's it's kind of like any story uh, that's yours. You know, you wouldn't go around telling somebody about uh, a scary experience without their permission. Um, and so 
you know, I think we really need to get the kids permission uh, before we share it with a lot of folks. If parents need their own support, they need to go get it. Um, like in the video, they talked about, you know, I need to go talk with other dads who are going through the same thing. That's absolutely right. Go get your own support for it, but don't just start, you know, go to a, a confidential place um, or, you know, a support group or a church setting that might be um, uh, more safe. But I would also have a conversation with the kid about it. Great, thank you. Um, don't see any other questions at the moment. Okay. Just to note to everyone, the slides uh, are now available on our website and the recording of this will be as well um, in the coming days. If there's no other questions, uh, you know, one of the things I encourage folks is to um, you know, there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, I have more resources I could share. Um, but, you know, but one of the, the biggest things that helps with change is visibility. Um, you know, with visibility comes change. And so for any of you who may be LGBTQ or I, um, you know, the more we're willing to be out about it, um, I think a lot of parents worry, is my kid gonna be okay? is my son or daughter or, you know, uh, gonna be okay without me? Um, they worry about their safety. Um, can they get a job? Will they be a contributing human being? Um, and sometimes they need to see us as out adults, as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or transgender people to realize, okay, we are functional. Um, we have, um, you know, we have families, we have jobs, we have careers, we, um, you know, I think the more, the more they see us, the more, the more we will start to help other people change their um, values and their experiences and their prejudices. Um, just like Rain Dove, who was willing to talk with that woman, even though she was hostile, I think you have to be pretty grounded to do that on a regular basis. I don't know that I would have the patience. Um, but, um, you know, Rain was able to make an impact, uh, incredible impact on that woman. And by virtue of that, able to help this woman connect to her transgender son and be more accepting and helpful. Uh, and so it takes work. And I think the more visible we are as um, a group and a community, and support those connections and those changes within families, mm -hmm. we're going to help decrease the risk and improve mental health. We do have a few questions coming in now, so I think probably enough to wrap out the last 10 minutes. Um, okay. So Kristen, you're asking where can we obtain these resources, and I'm not certain which resources you mean, so if you want to clarify and then we can answer that, address that question. Maybe a good next question. Um, is from Stephanie. Curious to know what common error she she sees in mental health sees mental health clinicians making despite good intentions. Okay. So common errors mental health clinicians make despite good intentions. Okay. So uh, I'll give you a few examples of some of the uh, errors clinicians make. Um, my colleague, uh, one of my colleagues. Um, transgender and used to work at a uh, private Christian university and uh, they transitioned on the job and one of the things that happened was they also had a family 
and several um, two kids. And um, one of the clinicians, you know, the, the the parent, you know, my colleague decided to make sure he, that he got support for his um, children, and so he put them in therapy. And the teenager um, had a crush on another friend of hers that was a girl. And the therapist made an assumption that because they were from a religiously affiliated university, that they would be, of course, anti-gay. And so the therapist um, outed herself about having a, uh, a gay brother and that she didn't approve of their lifestyle, but, um, you know, they still love them as a person. Um, and so that teenager did not feel like she could talk about her gay crush that she had on her girlfriend um, because she already got the sense that, okay, that there's no room for that here. So, so assumptions um, that just because somebody comes from a religiously affiliated university that they, um, you know, assume that they all are anti-gay or of course they are. Um, so those, that's one example of a mistake. Um, another example made by clinician as well as um, in the educational setting, the same family, um, you know, teachers or there are some therapists I've actually heard say this, um, the, the young kid who was a first grader, I think, when their parent transitioned. And uh, one of the things that happened was it became extremely unsafe because this um, colleague uh, transitioned very publicly. <clears throat> and the little girl um, went to school and her her teachers and the principal and everybody was saying, my goodness, how, you know, why this parent is so selfish. Why are they doing this to the, to the kid, you know, transitioning, man, couldn't they waited till they were, you know, the kid was an adult. So somehow this, the, the bias that, um, you know, the parents being selfish by transitioning. Well, you know, what they didn't realize was, that before the transition, this particular parent um, was deathly ill due to the mental and physical and psychological issues related to um, a mismatch in their gender. They were on, um, they had been in therapy for years. They were on um, tons and tons of female hormones to try and make them um, female. And they greatly affected their emotional and physical um, and then also, at some point, they were on every kind of antidepressant and psychotropic um, trying to stave off depression that they could come up with. And at one point, the person was so sick, they were in the hospital with suicidal with multiple organ failure. And finally, they changed their care team and the care team said, well, why don't you transition to male? So that colleague did. And within six months, he was off every medication he had been on. He was out of the hospital, very healthy. Um, so it was pretty miraculous in terms of the impact it had on both the physical health as well as the psychological health. So the little girl was happy. Their parents not dying. <laughs> Their parents not in the hospital. They're available to play with me now. Of course I'm happy that they transitioned. So those are some examples of some biases that we project as clinicians or as uh, 
community members onto either lesbian, gay, bisexual families or religious communities, um, uh, you know, that could interfere with our ability to do good work with them. I hope, I hope that helps answer the question. Yeah, that's a great answer. Great examples. Um, it really just points out the need to just be curious and not make assumptions and be aware of any biases and sort of areas of lack of knowledge and oversight that we might have and try and learn more. So Kristen clarified her question. Um, she's interested in understanding more resources regarding helping this population out who might be homeless, going through a tough time, et cetera. So what resources so, um, are available? So I, I can send uh, some of the resources that I have, I, I can um, send a link to a folder that I'm happy to have you all make available to participants. Um, you know, some of the resources, uh, Trevor Project has some, um, The uh, a lot of them have COVID-19 resources. Trans Hotline, uh, transgenderhotline.org um, has, transhotline.org has resources um, also that are COVID-19 related um, in terms of um, accessing that. Um, the, the article in the LA Times today, written by the Departmental Health Director, um, uh, Dr. Sharon, he has set up a new um, a new kind of 24-7 um, access line uh, for help that is supposed to be more friendly uh, to all, but especially for folks that are going through a lot of powerlessness and tolerating a lot of hopelessness. Um, and, you know, that certainly fits a lot of the LGBT, especially transgender community, but... Um, so there are a lot more resources and we just have to look around, but I'm happy to send you what I have. Um, there's a lot of, um, Planned Parenthood actually has a lot of fascinating videos on sexual orientation as well as gender identity um, and a lot of great psychoeducation. I was surprised at how much they have. So PlannedParenthood.org also has a lot of uh, those resources to help clients and families with those kind of things. Um, the other are helpful. I threw some links up in the chat for folks. Yeah, thank you. Um, one other question, uh, mm -hmm. and if you've got further resources, please share. Yeah. Um, but this question is, how can we help clients make a decision on hormone therapy? Uh, well, first of all, it's not our decision to make. Um, it is, um, you know, hormones are uh, not something that uh, somebody, a minor can access without parental consent. Um, and so, you know, the discussion needs to be to begin with the family um, and again, talk about outcomes and how outcomes will improve if there's more family acceptance. Um, and then, because what will happen with teens especially is if they can't get hormones, they get desperate enough and they get them on the street. Um, and they're much less safe um, and they potentially could be more toxic. So those are some other risk factors that parents have to take into consideration. Um, legally, kids are allowed to get hormones. Um, Children's Hospital Los Angeles is, was actually one of the pioneers in transgender um, health and intersex health. Um, it, they started back in the 50s or 60s, I think, and they have a pretty big program there as well. And they have uh, many medical staff and um, who are well-versed in transgender and intersex health care. Um, 
So that's another good place to get resources. That's helpful. I see Salvador's mentioning Alta Med Clinic at CHLA. Yes, yes that's CHLA, yes. Yeah. Um, for resources and guidance. There's um, my email address as well, if you'd like to, if you have any questions, anything I can help with. Um, and I'm happy again to um, send the, the um, resources that I have to the UCLA crew, and if they want to pass them on, welcome to, so. I think someone hoped to learn how to be a better ally for folks who may not identify as LGBTQ or I, or what what's the best way to be an ally what what would you recommend um you know do some of your own uh studying to be honest with you um read up read some stories of folks um you know i think you're an ally when um you help um expose the people in your life to um you know for example do you have friends who are trans or lgbt do you invite them into your home? Do you, um, you know, what do you do to help advocate for them? Um, do you address um, anti-LGBT um, comments when they show up in conversations, whether it's with you or family members or friends or online, um, just like you would with, you know, racism, especially for us cisgender folks um, and people who are non-LGBT. Um, you know, the more we can speak out and, and go, hey, you know what? Um, they're wonderful people, and I don't appreciate that. I, you know, you wouldn't want to be treated that way. So those are some great ways to be allies. Um, P flag, um, join some Facebook groups that are friends and family of trans as well as um, gay and lesbian. Uh, if you belong to a faith community, you want to remember clergy and um, faith communities are big. Uh, source of rejection. So you want to sow seeds, um, you know, start being visible as somebody who is affirming. But that, that requires us to put take some risk too. And we thank you for attending and participating.